Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the Wittgenstein on Learning podcast. Now that the introduction, or the introductory podcast, is out of the way, uh, this podcast comes in focus upon some of the topics, some of the concepts uh, that are raised by Wittgenstein that might apply or have a Wittgensteinian take on language, literacy, and learning. Now, for today's podcast, I'd like to pick up the topic of Wittgenstein's concept of language games. Now, for those who are not familiar with the concept of language games, let me describe briefly the, the main areas in which Wittgenstein presents this concept. Now, what's important here is that there's only a, actually a few examples of language games that Wittgenstein presents in, let's say, the philosophical investigations, but that those examples provide, I guess, a central point for a lot of his discussion. So let me stop the abstractions and get to, um, straight to the concept. So Wittgenstein sort of indicated that uh, when we learn a language, we don't learn by pointing at things, but we learn it in context. So we learn to play games with language. And he provides the example of a building site. And he has a builder, an experienced builder, and an apprentice builder. And that builder is uh, performing certain tasks. And to perform those certain tasks, he, has to ask, he needs to ask the apprentice for materials, such as a slab or a block. Um, and that might include numerals, such as five slabs, um, a block here, uh, etc. And what this example is trying to portray is the apprentice, to learn the language of the builder, is not um, looking them up in a dictionary, he's not uh, being ostensibly shown the items, he is learning all of these sort of factors or features in context, and they make sense immediately because of their use. Which is a significant concept that Wittgenstein is trying to portray. Similarly, he presents another language game in which it's as simple as two children are going to a shop, and they asked for five red apples from the shopkeeper. And the shopkeeper so registers, okay, the number five, so that means it's not eight, it's not two. And so he provides the exact number five to the children. And then he also looks up in a uh, color chart and he knows the difference between green apples and yellow apples and he provides them with red apples. And he also looks at a chart of different fruit. And in this case, he doesn't provide them with red um, oranges, he provides them with five red apples. Again, in this context, he's presenting an example in which numbers are being learnt very practically in the case of this purpose of buying items from a shop. And that color is not also only learned in an abstraction, but it has an immediate use within this context, as well as being able to distinguish between different types of fruit. Everything is being learnt to perform a deed. And so this is where language as use becomes an extremely important uh, feature of Wittgenstein's philosophy. Now, later on, he also hypothesized that what if there was a language game in which um, one only learnt orders that were delivered on a battlefield? So again, here's a context in which we wouldn't necessarily use this language or the, the style or the utterations or even the urgency of the language on um, a street corner. But within the context of a military context and in the context of being a soldier, one learns very quickly to um, uh, adopt the language game of orders 
being delivered by authorities with this expectation that the listeners will assess that order and be able to perform it. And I think it's important to mention in this context that Wittgenstein himself was an Austrian soldier in World War I in the trenches. And so again, he's probably conceptualizing that the only reason that he has learned that language game is because he was placed in that particular context. And he wouldn't necessarily anticipate that anyone else would, without those experiences, would as easily or would make sense of um, the turn-taking and the tones and the intonation and the expectations within that language game. All the expectations of that language game require one to be familiar with the context the context of war, and the association between different personnel and war. Now, similar to that, uh, Wittgenstein sort of lists a a wide range of other language games, which he um, lists in uh, Philosophical Investigation in the Numbered Remark of 23. And this includes um, reporting on event, play acting, uh, guessing riddles, uh, telling telling a joke or making up a joke, uh, singing catches, making up a story, uh, forming and testing a, a hypothesis, um, uh, requesting, thanking, greeting, cursing, a range of different performatives, things that we use language um, to do, um, to interact, and that we come to um, uh, acquire through our interaction with others. And so this interaction with others... It's influenced by what I, I'm going to talk about as, as, as four categories that I see within uh, Wittgenstein's concept of language games. Now, I'm reluctant to say that these are the main four categories, the only four categories that we should be attending to, because Wittgenstein would really uh, uh, be hesitant around this, this notion of essential categories. But the four categories that I see are you know, looking at language games as being context-specific so that we learn the language um, and the words in our vo- vocabulary through experience, through, through context. So these aren't so learned in the abstract, but in uh, the daily activities of doing. Second thing, uh, category is genres. He talks about you know, different modes of communicating, you know, commands, uh, forming hypotheses, uh, re- reporting, uh, narrating. And so these cut across context, but they are different modes of communication that come to be valued. And the third one is very different, and that is the language games that we play with our concepts, our words, um, and how our concepts become more nuanced and how we acquire uh, certain concepts, but also how um, we uh, replace some concepts with new concepts. And fourth, the language game of therapy. Uh, And that's more a language game of being critically aware of the concepts that we use, the games that we play, and seeking alternatives when we feel that those concepts and games are are entrapping us. So let me start with context-specific. And this is clearly indicated through the builder's example. So context-specific language games really emphasizes that we acquire a particular language or a particular lingo uh, in discourse by being immersed and surrounded by um, uh, others, performing actions um, and, uh, and certain values in that context. So whether it's uh, the language of musicians or whether it's the, the language of politics or whether it's the uh, language of sport, uh, we see that 
uh, let's say, a group of athletes who spend regular time together and are in, engaged in a particular game will start to um, and develop uh, the lingo. Uh, they won't be necessarily be explicitly taught, or they might be explicitly taught at the beginning, but the um, uh, further formulation of that language is conducted within um, completing the activity. And so then again, in this context, like in the builder's context, what's the main focus is not necessarily uh, the, uh, the language itself, but the deed, what's being accomplished. So that's one hand. You know, language games are about learning language in context, um, actively doing things, and learning the language necessary to get things done. The second one was about genres. Uh, in this case, he talked about reporting on an event, or forming a hypothesis, or telling a joke. And if I start with reporting an event, that's beyond or it cuts across contexts. You can report on a science event, you can report on a sport event, you can report upon something that happened on the weekend. In many cases, what's important here is that someone places a value upon the act of reporting. So one learns not only how to report, but that there's something significant about documenting and revisiting um, certain events, which is a language game. I, I come to value that game. Same with forming an, a hypothesis and testing that hypothesis. That's a language game that not all of us play, but a certain portion, and perhaps a significant portion, of the community values that game. And if we include religion as a part of a language game, again, it, certain individuals um, will be uh, valuing the notion of prayer and the role that prayer has within their living existence. And so it becomes a very important, and I know this will be, seem uh, quite um, uh, flippant, the term game, but it becomes an important language game, a mode of communication, a genre of reflection that um, becomes part of that person's life. So the third one was different. So on one hand we have, I learned la the language of context of the people I'm around and of what I'm actively doing. And then also I, I learned uh, generic modes of communication and I certain value some modes over, over others uh, based upon uh, uh, my experiences and the communities of practice that I navigate through. Whereas this third category is about concepts. So we learn to play games and to apply and to see the world through the concepts that we use. So what happens, for example, when I acquire the concept of melancholy? I've known the concept of sad, but suddenly melancholy um, is part of my vocabulary. And I distinguish it from sad as being something deeper, something uh, troubling to the soul, something that is about the cosmos not being aligned. Sad could be quite um, egocentric of being disappointed, whereas melancholy is something more contemplative. Someone might turn around and go, no, you're just being sad. But what is the, what happens when I distinguish or I start to see um, the difference between being in a state of melancholy as opposed to sad, or suddenly acquiring the notion, of being acquiring the concept of the sublime, 
of the romantic and trying to reach or acquire the sublime. It's part of a language game. Once I have acquired that concept, it becomes part of uh, how I operate, how I navigate. And in many cases, um, certain concepts uh, dictate the standards or the expectations that I have in the world around me. So the concept of social justice, of equity, um, of achievement, of, uh, of excellence. So as we can see, our concepts are things that uh, uh, we um, are moves in a game, in, in, the, in the game of how we exist. And if I provide another example, uh, an example in which a concept can enter into our, our language that could be negative, uh, I'll provide a, perhaps a, a quite colloquial example of, let's say, a teenager acquiring the concept of whatever or whatevs. Uh, in this concept, uh, we as adults might become quite concerned because the, the young person is um, deflecting serious uh, contemplation of what's happened by a, a move uh, in that game, whatever. No, I want you to take this seriously, says the adult, adolescent, whatever. And so that new concept becomes uh, a, a part of uh, intervening or mitigating or in fact evading um, serious contemplation. Which sort of leads me to the fourth concept, which is the concept of uh, language game as critical activity. So as critical activity, what is essential here is to be aware of the impact or the nature of the discourse uh, that um, uh, reflects and shapes uh, one's world picture um, or one's sort of engagement um, in the world. So it, it, on a very you know, practical level, it's looking at um, uh, a critical analysis of, let's say, uh, racist discourse. You know, let's say a politician was saying, I'm just focusing upon the issues at hand and what's inherently um, evident within that discourse is a particular rendering of, let's say, immigrants or of... Um, of uh, diverse language speakers that just thematically uh, presents um, uh, a particular picture, a particular sort of um, uh, uh, accusational picture of um, ethnic communities. Now one can, um, on the surface, not, uh, not uh, see any fault or flaw within um, uh, the, you know, the political discourse, but if one looks at the choices that w that the politician has or the, the policymakers have and sees that amongst those choices, what is the, the, uh, uh, the discourse that is rendered, then one can be in that critical position to examine just what perspective or what values um, are, are evident in the discourse and what a different discourse um, would bring about. Similarly, uh, uh, there was a case in which um, uh, in, a, in a discussion of, let's say, bullying at school, and, and this is a particular example, just by introducing uh, certain new, new concepts, new concepts of fairness, of equity, um, uh, and I won't go into the example in detail, uh, by giving 
um, students, young people, a new language and a new way of interpreting um, what seems like commonplace or um, an everyday occurrence or uh, the everyday occurrence of what happens on a schoolyard um, by introducing uh, a new frame of language through which to interpret those activities, suddenly the the concept of bowling becomes magnified. And so that is a case in which the introduction of concepts and the introduction of concepts in scenarios becomes a new analytical frame to, in a fresh way, re-examine what has always been the case, re-examine what has always been part of experience, but not necessarily viewed in that particular manner. So in this fourth category of language game as critical practice, one becomes conscious of the discourses present and what values those discourses uh, reveal. And then an examination of the degree of comfort that one is, uh, that one has, with the implications of that discourse. But also as critical practice, one can reflect upon uh, the impact that uh, the introduction of new concepts or the alteration of concepts might have upon how we see the world. Um, uh, Seeing that language does have a very powerful role in framing our interpretation of events and also articulating perhaps feelings or observations that we're having, but we not necessarily have uh, the words through which um, to be able to, uh, I guess, to um, explain ourselves. So it's at that stage that I'd like to wrap up this podcast. Um, uh, I feel that I'll revisit the concept of language games in the future because it is an important part of uh, Wittgenstein's philosophy. But to summarize the key four points is, Wittgenstein presents uh, as his main point that we learn language within context, um, in the act of, of, of doing, the act of doing and communally with others, uh, which is a, a quite more robust picture of language than uh, the initial example that Wittgenstein provides at the opening of the philosophical investigations, and that was taken from St. Augustine. That notion of a child is pointed to different things, and by being pointed to different items in the world, they acquire vocabulary, and that's how they acquire language. Uh, in Wittgenstein's case, it's, no, the child is brought into different activities, and it, by completing those activities, they acquire the language necessary to do so. Second ex- example is about not only the language to do activities, but valuing certain modes of communication, uh, so modes of discourse uh, that um, uh, uh, one uses to mitigate experiences. And the third, a very important one, is playing games with the gar- concepts, um, interpreting the world through our concepts, and then finally becoming critically aware of how our language, our discourse, our concepts um, have an impact upon um, our uh, perception and interpretation of um, of the world around us. So it's at this stage I'd like to, to thank you. Uh, thank you for um, listening to the Wittgenstein on Learning podcast. Uh, please visit uh, wittgenstein-on-learning.com uh, for more information about uh, the site uh, and to um, follow f- further podcasts. And you can also visit um, uh, iTunes and search for Wittgenstein on Learning 
to subscribe um, to this podcast. Thank you very much, and uh, feel free to visit the site and leave a content uh, comment, um, ask a question, etc. Thank you.